Um, so make sure you have your Bibles open at the 16th chapter of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. This is the last sermon on 1 Corinthians, but I want to try to set up. It's a very, very different kind of passage, and I want to set it up for you so you can sort of see what's happening. Uh, the Apostle Paul has been speaking all these words to what is called an amanuensis, just a secretary. It would have been a scholarly person who could write down on scrolls everything Paul said. So he would have been in a room and walking around and saying all these things. And many of you, if not most of you, have been here for the majority of the sermons over the last uh, way more than half a year. And uh, we've seen all kinds of things, commendation for the people. Uh, Paul at times has been really upset at the people. You can tell that some of the people in Corinth, he taught there for a year and a half. Timothy was with them at that time also. That becomes important in a moment. And uh, uh, he's now writing back to the church. And there's some letters have gone back and forth here. And so he's answering questions and uh, trying to just handle general problems. And this is important that you remember, even though I'll remind you again, that he's told them in the fourth chapter, he didn't have chapters, he was writing on scrolls, on the fourth chapter of our Bibles, uh, that he was going to be coming and uh, to back to the church. And he kind of put it in a warning sense. I'll read the passage to you later, where he's challenging people that are challenging him, even his apostleship. And so that's all been going on, every kind of emotion. The love chapter, chapter 13, is one of the most wonderful chapters in the whole Bible where he taught us about what it means to love one another. And uh, now we have come to the end. So just try to understand, here's what's happening. They would have called a meeting, or it could have been the regular church meeting, and somebody who was a practiced reader that had the scrolls, I don't know how many scrolls it would have been, would have read this letter that we have in our Bible, to the congregation of people in Corinth. And it would have taken quite a while for them to do that. And as they were reading the letter, as we know from our own study, there would have been all kinds of things going on and emotions happening and people being accused and all kinds of stuff in the audience as they're listening to what Paul has to say and realizing that he's going to be coming back among them again and answering some of their questions. And so I want you to just see that, that there's a congregation of people. Uh, they don't have the culture that we have. There's nothing to get in the way. They don't have to go back to see the football game or anything like that. Uh, they don't mind basically how long this is going to take. And so they're, they're listening carefully. And they were good listeners. And they would uh, remember everything that was being said. And now Paul's doing this amazing wrap-up. And uh, it's... It, it, there's some very difficult parts in it that we're going to study today. So I just want you to sort of get the feeling of that. And so when I put a sermon together, normally I try to describe the sermon in one sentence. Valerie often asks me, what's your sentence? Meaning, uh, if you can't, if I can't say in one sentence what the sermon's about, I'm probably not going to communicate to you anything. But I find this hard to do in chapter 16. On the one hand, Paul is actually asking for money for the church in Jerusalem, the poor church in Jerusalem. That was the, what you would call the grandfather church. That's where it all started. 
and he's asking them to raise money, and he's asking other churches in a place called Galatia, a number of churches, to raise money. So on the one hand, we have Paul asking for money, but giving is not the main idea of the chapter. Actually, if you were here last week, we ended the chapter on chapter on verse 1 Corinthians 15, 58, and it actually would have been a very good place to finish the whole letter. And it reads, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, fellow Christians, stand firm, he says. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is never in vain. So, but that isn't the end, but it could be. Uh, But this chapter is not teaching on giving, but I will still point out that Jesus expected that we would be financial givers. I really thought about this and thought, do I really want to do this? No. So uh, here goes. Here's what Jesus said about giving. We're going to start there. Matthew chapter 6, the first four verses. It's on the screen. Jesus said, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Uh, If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And then he says, so when you give to the needy. Now, in this part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, when you give, when you fast, and when you pray. In other words, he's just assuming that everyone that has become a Christian will give, will pray, and will fast. So he handles those three things, and we're just going to look at the giving one. So he says, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. They made a big deal out of their giving, especially at the temple where we'll see something different there in a moment. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full, but when you give to the needy, Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. That's profound. And it's a promise from Jesus. Uh, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. Each of you shall give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Why? Why? because God loves a cheerful giver. And now we're going to be doing 2 Corinthians all the way through. When we get to 8 and 9, we're going to do more than one sermon on giving and learn an awful lot about it, but that is the essence of it there. Now, whenever I do speak about financial giving, I like to make two points. Point number one is that God actually suggests, this might surprise some of you, that we test him regarding our giving, so as to confirm his willingness to reward us. And secondly, and this will really, some of you will say, what's that about? Well, here it is. I do not believe in giving 10%. How can you say that? I'm a tither. No. Here's what I mean. If you're going to be tithers, In concert with what the Bible says about tithing, 10% is not enough. 
biblical tithing is actually more than 20%. And to bring the tithes into the storehouse, just like bringing your money to the church, we'll see that in verse form in a moment, but bringing your tithes into the storehouse at that time, meaning the temple, means that we are giving different tithes, and it was not unusual for some to tithe even 30%, because they would have different tithes. And each of the tithes was 10%, but it was never just one. So New Testament giving is free will giving, free will giving. We should give according to what we can afford unless God has led us otherwise. Now, I want to say this. Val and I have been faithful givers as Christians for decades, and there have been times when we have given more than one would consider wise. God has always always, always rewarded us. I need not say more. Is that kind of giving is totally between God and each of us individually. Now, the most famous verse on giving is in Malachi. That's the last chapter of your last, the last chapter in the last book of your Bible. Malachi chapter 3. Anybody that's ever heard a sermon on giving, you've already heard it. In the New Living Translation, it reads this way. Bring all the tithes, all the tithes. Now, that doesn't mean that all you people bring your tithe. He means bring all the tithes because there were specific tithes. There's tithes for this purpose, tithes for that purpose, tithes for that purpose. So bring all the tithes into the storehouse of the temple so that there will be enough food in my temple. And then if you do, this is God speaking through Malachi the prophet, if you do, says the Lord Almighty, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Now listen to this. Try it. Let me prove it to you. Now we know that this was an agrarian culture. There were all farmers and that kind of thing. Your crops, we can think about our businesses, your crops will be abundant. For I will guard them from insects and disease, and your grapes will not shrivel before they are ripe, says the Lord Almighty. That's pretty big stuff. In the Message Bible, just a part of it reads this way, and it really gets it right. Bring your full tithe to the temple treasury so there will be ample provision in my temple, in the church in this case. Then it says, test me in this, test me. And see if I don't open up heaven itself to you and pour out blessings beyond your wildest dreams. John MacArthur says he never makes jokes. He's always, when he preaches, I've never heard him make too many. But on this one, he says, the only problem with that promise is uh, that uh, it may not be money blessings. He might only give you spiritual blessings. <laughs> My favorite Jesus story regarding giving occurred when Jesus draws the attention of his disciples to a woman who is giving, a, a widow, a very poor widow. And you can't exaggerate how difficult it was to be a widow at this day. The synagogue was supposed to take care of widows, but it was very difficult to be a widow. So Mark chapter 12, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put. This is in the temple. And watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Now, they would have these things that looked like trumpets like that came up, and people would throw mostly coins into them. 
And the people who were rich, especially, uh, they would come in, dressed in all the regalia, making a big deal, and they'd have coins, and they'd have all kinds, and they keep throwing them in, making all kinds of noise, sort of saying, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at all the money we're giving and how generous I am. That's why I read the scripture before. So Jesus is sitting there. You could say it this way, and it would be, not, it would be right. God is watching all of this going on. And it says many rich people threw in large amounts, lots of noise. But a poor widow came. Nobody would pay any attention to a poor widow, believe me, or any widow. And put in two lepka is the right name, very small copper coins worth less than a penny in our money. It says here worth only a few cents to try to make it show you how little it was. And calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, basically, did you see that? I Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Now, if you really think about that, really think about it. I mean, she walked away from the temple totally broke, trusting God. And the imagery is fantastic. God was watching her and even commended her. And I'll guarantee you, I don't, I, we don't know what happened to her, but I, I do. I know. God took care of her. And uh, see, the motive is the, more, the most important part of this. Now, let me just talk about giving in our church here, and then we'll go on to the sermon. Um, when we started the church 35-plus years ago, uh, on the TV and media that was available at the time, there was a magazines. It was all about churches who had, who were, the basic picture was stealing your money. And there were actually uh, a particular famous pastor went to jail for a while because of the schemes he had got and gotten money from people from his television ministry. Uh, Time magazine, Newsweek magazine had big stories about uh, all, ch all churches are just after your money. And, they, of course, they found the pastors that had uh, fancy cars and had big houses and uh, all of this kind of stuff. And it really was a black eye to the church. And, of course, it meant that the, the culture in general back then, 19, early 1980s, around mid-1980s, the culture back then, people were saying, yeah, the church is just after your money. So when we started the church we agreed with the small group that we started with that we would not take up an offering at all. Not any. We wouldn't even say anything about money. And we just start the church, and we teach, and we see what happens. And as a result of that, and this is why I'm telling you this, to, for me, the greatest miracle I've ever seen is the provision uh, from you and all others that have been here for over 35 years of even more than we need to keep the ministry going here and all over the world and the missionaries, and it's unbelievable. We have never taken up an offering for the church ever. Now, we've taken up a couple or three offerings for missionaries that have gotten in trouble abroad uh, because if one had everything stolen from them, they can't go just get a job or something, and so we did that, and that was always incredibly generous uh, giving. 
Uh, we've had times when our money was right down real low and we weren't sure we were going to be able to pay our bills and, and uh, the administrator then and, and Jim and his time too he calls the pastors or the elders say, let's pray, and we but never said more than that. And if I wanted to, I could do several sermons on how money came in without us even asking anybody but God. It really is amazing. I'm so thankful for your generosity. Now, in saying all that, and of course, we have the boxes in the back. I normally talk about that in the, before the sermon, and that's where the giving goes along with online giving. And the, we did, when we did a building program, we asked everybody to fill out a card uh, anonymously just saying, this, I'm willing to give this amount over this amount of time so we could decide whether we're going to do the building program. And God has always supplied us everything uh, that we have needed. It is really uh, one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen. There's a cliche, a cliche. It's not in the Bible, but it sort of is. The cliche is you can't outgive God. Believe me, I promise you, it's true. So can the uh, ushers come forward with the... No. <laughs> I, could, I couldn't help myself. <laughs> so Paul here is first of all clearing up some questions about the collection that was being made for the poor, the financially poor Jerusalem church, which was made up mostly of Jewish Christians, and that's important to know. Paul starts by telling the Corinthians that each one should set aside money for the collection every week, every week. And I would just say there's a principle here that I believe is, is right. Make giving an unbreakable habit. Make it an unbreakable habit. Giving is a form of worship and should be thought of that way. Weekly or systematic plan giving is a great way to worship God. So just as it is not possible to, to really, <coughs> excuse me, grow as a Christian if we don't read God's Word most every day. It's also a mistake to, commit your, to not commit yourself to a regular giving plan. So now, look at your Bibles. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. Now about. Now about. There's two now abouts in the following Scripture. Now, about the collection... For the Lord's people, and they, he doesn't have to say more than that because they already know they're already starting to collect the money in Jerusalem. Do what I told the Galatian churches, there are multiple churches to do, on the first day of every week, that would be Sunday, by the way. The early church met on Sunday. That was Resurrection Day. And uh, some of them at first still went to the synagogue on the Sabbath and Saturday. Eventually, they were all kicked out. The Apostle Paul always went to a synagogue when he went to a new place. But eventually, when he talked about the resurrection, they would kick him out. So what he's saying here is, uh, on the first day of every week, Sunday, each one of you in the congregation should set aside, he's saying, a sum of money in keeping with your income. Uh, now, I... I need to stop there and just say something because this is, uh, I, I can't tell the stories, but I can tell you about what happens. I've fairly often over the years 
I had somebody come to me and ask the question, do I have to give? I'm in, su I'm in such dire straits financially. I remember especially one single mom with some kids, and she said, we're just barely make it. We're not even sure we're going to make it from one week to the next. Do I have to give? And she actually used the word tithe. Do I have to tithe? You know, am I being disobeying God if I don't tithe? And I, I said to her, and I said it to a number, I said, I think it's a mistake not to give at all. I think it is. So yes. But the amount, forget that. Take a dollar a week and just put it in the box in the back. Or even if that's two fifty cents, it doesn't matter. The motive is what counts. And go to God and say, like that woman, I always tell the story of the woman, and say, God, this is, I don't have more, and I, I want to give. And, and then I always say, and I promise you, God will amaze you. And I can tell you, I, I can't tell some of their stories, but uh, it's amazing. Uh, so the amount, it's according to your income, it's according to your circumstance. And so sometimes people will say, well, I give sacrificially, et cetera, et cetera. Just tune them out, and you give the amount that God tells you to give. But I promise you, if you give with the right motive, the amount isn't the point. God will bless you, and you will be amazed what happens. So the reason that he's telling them to do this, though, so you should know in context, is that if he were to just come and have a, an offering, he wouldn't got anywhere near the amount of money that he's going to get now because they're saving up for a period of time. That's why he's actually putting it this way, that they're doing it week by week. And then he says, uh, so keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. The money will just be there. I won't have to take up a collection. And then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve who are going to take, these are men who are going to take the money to, to Jerusalem uh, and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. Now, the, there's a good reason for that. It's going to be a significant amount of money. There's lots of robbers on the roads. There's going to be more than one man. There'll be two or three or four men taking the money there. And then the letter that Paul's going to write is like a receipt saying when they get to Jerusalem that this is the amount of money that was raised and this is the amount of money we're giving you. And so that's why he's doing that. So then when I arrive, I'll give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them as your gift to Jerusalem. Verse 4, if it seems advisable for me to go also, they'll accompany me. And so he was always saying in different ways, if God wills, and that's what he's saying here. So this collection Paul is talking about, and the reason for letters of introduction is to help the materially poor church in Jerusalem, which was made up mostly, and this is important, of Jewish Christians. The overriding reason that this was so important was that the Corinthian church was made up mostly of Gentile Christians. Uh, Paul was always building bridges between the Jews and the Gentiles so they could see that in Christ they were no longer racially separated. And believe me, there were a lot of Jews that didn't believe that Gentiles could go to heaven. So this collection fulfilled the need to take care of those in the Christian body who were poor, but also build a bridge to rid the church of any idea of racial prejudices. And uh, you should have all memorized it by now. I've used it so often. But Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, uh, Paul writes, there is in Christ, there is neither Jew or Gentile, 
neither slave uh, nor free, uh, nor is there male or female. You're all one, equal in Christ Jesus. You're all equal at the foot of the cross. So there's only one race. It's the human race. In Christ, we are all equal. Our ethnicity is irrelevant to our relationship to Jesus and to one another. Our economic status means nothing when it comes to our spiritual status, and men and women are equal in Christ. So now we see some of Paul's travels here. So verse 5, Paul has already told them he's going to come and see them uh, in a previous chapter. He wasn't reading chapters, but in a previous chapter. Verse 5, after I go through Macedonia, he was taking an overland route rather than a sea route, I will come to you. For I will be going through Macedonia. And perhaps, perhaps I will stay with you a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey. Now, Paul wouldn't take money from them. That was one of the criticisms they had of him. He worked as a tent maker, uh, but he, there's lots of supplies and stuff they could give him, and they send them along. So, so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go, verse 7, for I do not want to see you now. I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I don't want to do that. I hope to spend time with you. And then he said, if the Lord permits. I've written in my notes, Paul the diplomat, you know, because he knows some of them don't want him to come there. So he has to make his decisions. But he says in verse 8, he tells him what's happening right now in his life. He's in Ephesus. Uh, but I will stay at Ephesus until Pentecost. Now, the reason he's, he mentions Pentecost, that's the birth of the church. That's when the Holy Spirit came. And because because, verse 9, a great door for effective work is open for me, and there are many who oppose me. That was the case all through Paul's life. All through Paul's life. Now, I'm going to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. Paul's writing this letter. And I just put it on the screen. You could turn to it, but you don't need to. For this reason, now get our mindset now. We're sort of moving out of the sermon in this sense, going back to 1 Corinthians 4. And uh, th this has already been read to them again in their meeting. So, for this reason, I'm sending to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He'll remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, because he worked with Paul in Corinth, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. But now he gets kind of tough here. He says, some of you have become arrogant. Now, some of you, those you use, those some of yous are sitting there listening to this right now when, the, uh, when it's being read for the first time in the church. Some of you have become arrogant as if, you were, as if I were not coming to you. Oh, but I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have for the kingdom of the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but a matter of power. So what do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline? Or shall I come and love him with a gentle spirit? Wow. <laughs> and then in verse 10, in our, back to first, chapter 16, verse 10, when Timothy comes, this is still from, you can say, the pen of Paul, 
when Timothy comes, see to it, because he's already sent Timothy, that he has nothing to fear while he is with you. For he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. The way Paul works on relationships with the church is amazing. Verse 11, no one then should treat Timothy with contempt. He could have said, and, it's, and they're thinking it, like, like you treated me. And then send him on his way in peace. That's the word shalom. In other words, then after he's finished ministering, send him about with good wishes, with uh, prayers for peace, give him everything he needs so that he may return to me. I'm expecting him along with the brothers. Now, we, we need to talk about Timothy a little bit here. Timothy did not lack courage, but it is clear he was not a forceful personality, and he was younger than some in Corinth who thought too highly of themselves. And so Paul wrote Timothy two letters near the end of his life, uh, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. And in 1 Timothy, I've chosen some verses and put them all together, Paul wrote this to Timothy. He says, the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teaching has come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared with a hot iron, and if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourishing, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed, Paul taught him. Command and teach these things, Timothy. Don't let anyone look down on, on you because you're young. Because you're young. Set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. Be diligent in these matters and give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. So, we must be willing, based upon that, to listen carefully. I've got an agenda here, and you'll hear it. We must be willing to listen carefully to young men who might one day take over here. I mean, it's no secret that I'm over 30. <laughs> but notice what Paul said to Timothy about setting an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. One of my goals in ministry in life as a Christian is to demonstrate that aging doesn't make me the stereotype of a grumpy old man. We need both men and women who are aging to demonstrate in the church the fruit of the Spirit. In much greater ways than we did, we aged ones, when we were much younger. Young people, and we're getting lots and lots more young people in our church here. Young people should be looking at us and be filled with hope as they see we are far more loving and joyful and peaceful and patient and kind. Our goodness and faithfulness and gentleness should be obvious because we're filled with the self-control that is a fruit of the Spirit. We have had God, the Holy Spirit, living in us a long time, and that should make a difference. And if you're aging and you've not memorized Galatians 5, 22 and 23, you better do it right away. 
And 22 and 23 says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then the next sentence is an orphan sentence in the Bible. We tend to stop there, but the next sentence after that says, against such things there's no law. So in this church, we have no law against being more peaceful, more gentle, more faithful, and having self-control, and being more kind, and all that kind of stuff. So... Verse 12 is the next now about, the next now about. Now about, this is something in their letter to Paul he's responding to. Now about our brother Apollos, this is brilliant. I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now. Now, the reason that I stop a little bit here is urged. That pictures Paul's humility. Paul was an apostle. Uh, he, could, he had incredible authority. But the church isn't a cult. It's a family. And Paul was a man of wisdom. And he went to, he went to, to Apollos because there had been a problem between their thought of Apollos and their thought of Paul and their thought of Cephas, that's Peter, and, their, uh, and even who followed after Jesus. And so it caused a problem and a bit of a split within the church. And so he goes to Apollos and he said, I strongly urge you. And then he walks away, they're friends, and they remain friends. Uh, this is really important to understand and to learn. Uh, Paul says to us, uh, chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, which is a memory verse for most Christians, in the book of Romans, Paul says, I urge you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to give your lives as living sacrifices. He could have said, I command you to do this. This is the right thing to do. Uh, no, he didn't do that. He urged the people. He urged the people. Forcing someone to do something is useless. And Paul understood that. And he was a man of great humility. And so he says that Apollos was quite unwilling to go. He didn't want to go. But he will go when he has the opportunity. I have confidence in him, he's saying. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul accused the Christians in Corinth of worldliness. At one time he says, you're mere infants in Christ. You're just baby Christians. And he proves it by pointing out how much they are quarreling among each other and taking sides on which Bible teacher is the preferred one. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4. Uh, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, he's got better illustrations, he's a better preacher than Paul, are you not mere human beings? In other words, he's saying the same thing. You're just children, just infants in Christ. You're not even growing up. Come on, grow up. This also proves that neither Paul or Apollos were responsible for the conflict. They were fellow apostles and they loved each other. Paul had made it clear the gospel was God's good news about Jesus and ultimately had nothing to do with Paul or Apollos. Paul preached the gospel and Apollos watered the soil with his teaching so the gospel could grow and both of them gave all the credit to God. So Paul is now ready to end his letter. Look at verse 13 and 14. It has five points in it. Verse 13 and 14. Number one, be on your guard. Two, stand firm in the faith. Three, be courageous. Four, be strong. 
And five, this is what mixes them all together, do everything in love. Now, this is really something. He's ending the letter strongly this way. These two verses contain a list of five imperatives. They were written like military commands. He's saying, if you're going to be a Christian, these are five things you must do. Now, we ended last week, as I already said, with a strong imperative statement and started the message this week with the same statement, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Why? Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So let's look at the five things real quick. Number one, be on your guard. Be on your guard. Uh, three years Paul was in Ephesus. In chapter 20, he's meeting with the elders. There's even tears. He's leaving to go on another missionary journey. And he tells the men, these elders, he says, even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Number two, stand firm in the faith. The Thessalonian church is one of the best churches. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, Paul writes, So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. I would say, keep reading your Bibles. And then I would add, because Paul talked about spiritual warfare quite a bit, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13 Paul writes, use every piece of God's armor to resist the enemy in the time of evil, and we live in that time right now, so that after the battle, you will still be standing firm. And then number three, be courageous. The idea behind this phrase can be understood with the exhortation uh, to be a man that we might imagine a father giving to a son, but it applies to all of us as Christians. We are all to be courageous, meaning mature in the faith. Uh, Psalm 31, 24 reads, So be strong and take courage, all you who put your hope in the Lord. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16. Pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will give you mighty inner strength through the Holy Spirit. And number four, be strong. Ephesians 6, 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Number five, and this is really the important one. They're all important. But do everything in love. Everything in love. I have in my desk at home a, a, a living Bible sits on my desk. I open it up often and just read chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians, the love chapter. Uh, I've, in all of the Bibles I've read, it's best there. And uh, <clears throat> in a couple of verses... It reads, love, love, this is us. This is you, you were here, most of you, for the 13th chapter, so you should put your name in there. I am very patient. Love is kind. I'm kind and never jealous or envious, never boastful or proud, never haughty or selfish or rude. Love does not demand its own way. It's not irritable or touchy. It does not hold grudges, and this is my favorite part, and will hardly even notice when others do it wrong. By the way, some people will do you wrong. In the body of Christ, in church, they'll say unfortunate things or 
something they should never have said. And it says, love hardly even notices when others do it wrong. It is never glad about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Paul would have never needed to write the letter we have just studied for several months if the Christians in Corinth loved as only Christians can love. Now look at verse 15. This is really interesting. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, that's Greece, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. And then he says, there's this word again, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people like the household of Stephanus and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. Now, this is really interesting because the household of Stephanus, Paul baptized. He baptized the household of Stephanus. Now, how many people are in it? We don't know for sure, but there would have almost certainly been a, a mother and father and one or two or more children, and probably, uh, by the Greek names and everything, probably a slave or two. That, that would be part of the household. And so they were the first converts in Greece, and Paul baptized them, and now they're involved in the church. And he's saying to the people, you need to, I urge you to submit to them. Look at what they're doing. Look at how they took, they're the ones, by the way, that uh, would have uh, taken uh, the letter uh, back to the church. They would have taken the letters to Paul that the Corinthians wrote, some of them, and all of that type of things. But this is important because we talk about it here all the time. We're to submit to one another. And in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, it says, submit to one another out of a reverence for Christ. And you might say, well, I know that chapter. That's all about marriage. Wives submit to husbands and all of that kind of thing. It is, yes. But here it's talking to a couple who are going to be married, and it's saying, Paul's saying, besides the roles of marriage, you must submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And you must submit to all the one another's around you. We belong to one another, First, uh, 12th chapter of the book of, of, of uh, Romans. Uh, we belong to one another. We belong to each other, and we must submit to each other. And we can't do that if we don't know each other, if we don't hang around with each other and pray for each other and serve together. So just to be clear, this exhortation is talking about ministering in the local church. We are all to submit to one another, to all those who minister. Now, here's what it means. We're to submit to leaders, to parking lot attendants, to greeters, to nursery workers, uh, Sunday school teachers, music team members, cafe and coffee shop servers. Together, our submission will make coming to our services and special events and outreaches a joy and not a burden. Uh, so when the music leader, as she did today, tells us to greet one another, and you really did a great job, all of us should submit to that urging, and we will continue to be known as a welcoming people who truly love one another. And then in verse 17, again, we're still with the family. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, by the way, Fortunatus, the word, is, is, it means lucky or blessed. And it's thought by many that he may have, may have been a, a family slave that's now a Christian. 
So I'm glad when Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus arrived, they arrived with a letter to Paul because they supplied what was lacking from you. For they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. What he means by that is Paul is a year and a half in Corinth, so he's separated from them now. And now they've come to Corinth uh, to see Paul. He knew them. He baptized them. And, and now it's sort of like, oh, what a blessing that they're there. The Corinthian church couldn't bless Paul like that because they were far separated geographically. It happens here a lot. After all these years, it's not unusual for on a Sunday morning to, for me to see somebody walk through the door who hasn't been at the church, who used to be at the church and hasn't been here for a long time, even 10 or 20 years, because they moved to some other place, some other state, and there's some other church, and they come in, and it's just such a blessing to them and to me. So they're bringing a blessing to me literally from the other church, and I always ask them about their church and their pastor and everything, and that's the picture here. It's a blessing. We never lose that if we build one another relationships. Now, the Christian life is not a life of complacency. It has to be lived purposely, even aggressively. We have an enemy, and if we don't pay attention to this short but significant exhortation, the five points that we went through, we can be neutralized. The gospel is to be lived with courage and love in such a way that the world wonders how we can live that way. Jesus said that they will see, unbelievers will see that we love one another, and that will be the witness that will cause others to desire what we have. The apostle Peter tells us to completely commit ourselves to the Lord, and others will ask us to give a reason for the hope that is within us. My point is that being a Christian is no small thing. It takes a total giving of one's life to Jesus Christ and to one another in love. This kind of life is impossible apart from the Spirit of God. Now look at verse 19. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Now this is in some ways the most important part of this letter. It's Paul's intent here, I believe, to point out that the, to the church in Corinth that they're not the only church. Obviously, they knew that they weren't the only church, but sometimes we have to be reminded that we're part of something much bigger than Calvary Chapel of Sarasota. We are a part of the churches in Sarasota and Florida and America and around the world. We are divided often by theological differences, nevertheless, Unless these differences contain heresy, we must be careful to maintain fellowship, even if some particular practices are different than what we practice. And I just want to add, and this is important to me, I'm very active on Facebook, I want to add that Facebook is not the place to present our prejudices regarding other churches. <laughs> Jesus said they will know us by our love for one another, rather than they will reject us by our non-essential public complaints about one another. We need to keep it in the family. Now look at verse 19 still, and this is really neat. Priscilla and Aquila, or Aquila and Priscilla, greet you warmly. So they used to be in Corinth, and now they're with Paul in Ephesus. So Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. Paul met Aquila and his wife Priscilla when they first visited Corinth. 
They were tent makers, and Paul worked as a tent maker with them while he was part of the church in Corinth. Obviously, they moved on and started a church in their home and still have great memories of the church in Corinth. They were the ones who led Apollos to the Lord. When Paul left Corinth, they traveled with him to Ephesus and started a church. They also traveled to Rome and started a church in their home there. And this should encourage the Corinthian church that they produce such a great couple who are reaching out to others with the gospel. And then we have verse 20. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings, Paul says. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, the church is a family, and the holy kiss was a way of showing love and acceptance to one another in the family. Now, I like to say that we in our culture have replaced it today with a hearty handshake or a proper hug. Paul, verse 21, now we're just about done. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. So what happens here? Paul would have taken the pen from his amanuensis and written the rest in large print. He does the same in the letter to the Galatians, Galatians 6.11. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Now, since some in Corinth had questioned Paul's authority, he no doubt wanted to be sure they understood he himself was the author of the letter that they were reading. And then after writing that sentence, Paul thinks back over those who have not only questioned his authority as an apostle, but those who could be led astray by the ones questioning and by their own biblical lifestyles. This is hard, this. That's why he writes such a strong statement. Paul is protective of the people in the churches he's responsible for. So in verse 22... He says, if anyone does not love the Lord. Now, there's an important word here. The word love here is pronounced filio in the Greek language. It means sort of a a brotherly love, just love in general, more of a brotherly love, not the agape love. Paul only uses the word here and in the book of Titus, the only time he ever used it. All the other times he uses the word agape. So here's what he said. This is really hard. If anyone does not have any love for the Lord then let that person be cursed. The word for cursed is pronounced anathema. Anathema. It's a very strong word. And then he just says this, come, Lord. That word is pronounced maranatha. And it's, it's, a, it's actually a prayer. It's at the end of the Revelation also. And it really is a prayer for the Lord to come. Or it can actually be a prayer the Lord is near. Either way would work fine. So... What he's saying is really strong. There are some people teaching some very bad things in that church, and they're now sitting in that audience listening to this letter. They've got to be very uncomfortable, and everybody knows exactly who he's talking about. How should we treat people like that? Well, I'll read just two verses from the church in Thessalonica. Paul writes this way. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in the letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. They're part of the family. And some of us have parts of the family, maybe children, that uh, we thought they were saved, and now it's clear they're not. Uh, We don't reject them out of hand. We don't never talk to them. 
no, they're part of the family. We want to talk to them. They claim to be to know Christ at one time, but it's pretty clear that they don't know Christ. So this is hard for him to say that, but he had to say it. But he ends better than that. He ends in verse 23 and 24 this way. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. We can't exaggerate the word grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus. God didn't have to do all he's done. He didn't have to send Jesus. Jesus didn't have to go to the cross, but they did. Unmerited favor. And then he says, my love, agape love, to all of you in Christ Jesus, amen. Now, I'm just going to end this way. I called the sermon, if you might, you might have noticed, from grace to grace. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it opens this way. So we're going, I'm going right back to the beginning. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy or set-apart people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace. This is right at the beginning of this letter. To you, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, our salvation starts with grace and ends with grace. None of us deserve salvation. But when God grants salvation, he also gives us his grace to live our lives for him in the power of the Holy Spirit, no matter what. So, let's pray. Father... This has been an adventure, again, going through the first Corinthian letter. I look forward to the next letter of Paul's that we're going to study. Father, we've all learned a lot. We've had every kind of emotion, if we paid a lot of attention to all that Paul had to say. And I'm sure that some of us uh, changed our ways, <laughs> and others of us felt in incredibly encouraged. But altogether, Father, this is a picture of what church is really like. And it sometimes can be kind of messy. But it's still the most important thing on the planet today. If our country has any hope and if the world has any hope, it'll only be because of the church and because of your word and because of what you promised. And we can know that nothing is happening in our world today or in our own lives today that doesn't go through your hand for our good and your glory. And so, Father, help us to be uh, the kind of Christian that Paul painted with those five points and help us to, in the power of the Spirit, demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit as we learn to love one another even those among us, probably me more than any, who can be difficult sometimes. And so, Father, if there's anyone here that doesn't yet know the Lord Jesus Christ, you're really missing out on being a part of a great family. And all you need to do is to come to God and say, God, I'm a sinner. I'm 
repent of my sin. I want to turn from my sin. If you're in the sound of my voice here or online, you probably know quite a bit about what's going on and you may haven't made a decision yet. You need to make that decision to say, come into my life. I want to change. I want you to change me. And then you can become part of the body of Christ and work together with the rest of us to show the world what Jesus is like. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.